0: Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the seventh episode of the Global Student Economics Forum's official podcast. I'm Keisha Pramesh, a co-founder and the chief executive officer of this entirely student-led organization, which is dedicated to advancing economic literacy in high schools worldwide through various initiatives. Our mission is to ensure that all students are able to engage with our resources, programs, opportunities, and more, so that they can understand, appreciate, and contribute to the role that economics plays in shaping everything and everyone from global institutions to individual workers. You can visit our website at www.gsefofficial.org to learn more about joining and contributing to our organization. With me today is Dr. Shiva Vishwanathan, a professor of information systems at the University of Maryland Smith School of Business. Professor Vishwanathan specializes in the digital economy, information systems and management among other fields. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to speak with us, Professor Vishwanathan.
1: Uh, It's a pleasure, Keshav. Uh, Thank you for having me on your podcast. I'm very happy to talk to you.
0: All right. So let's start off with our very first question. So many of our listeners are high school students looking to pursue economics or business or other related fields of study in college. Could you walk us through the steps you took in your educational experience that led you to where you are now?
1: Uh, I'd like to say that it was all perfectly planned, but uh, I guess that's uh, far from true in my case. My undergrad (laughs) degree was in electrical engineering, uh, and then I worked for a couple of years in designing high voltage power distribution systems. I then decided to get an MBA, and I specialized in finance and general management. Again, after which I worked for a couple of years in the financial services industry. Um, And while corporate life had a lot of perks, I don't think I found it very satisfying. I always had a very deep curiosity to understand things at a much more basic level, and that got the better of me. So I decided to pursue a PhD. Um, actually, I initially started with the PhD program in finance, and uh, during the first few, few weeks, I was really reading very vigorously across a very broad category of um areas, research papers in different areas, and I came across some interesting research in the field of information systems. And right then and there, I was very struck by how eclectic this field was, and so I decided to switch to a PhD in information systems, and that turned out to be a much more serendipitous choice than I'd realized at the point in time. Uh, I got my PhD in information systems from the Stern School of Business NYU. And this was a time in the mid to late 90s when I think this was a very exciting time for researchers in this field because primarily because of the growth of the web and emergence of firms like Amazon, Google, and the eBays of the world, which were beginning to change not just businesses, but pretty much every aspect of human life, I think. So um, since then, most of my research has been about how do these emerging technologies impact businesses, individuals, and society at large? Um, so I guess um, coming back to your question, a lot of it is uh, just about being curious and um, I guess being open to new possibilities.
0: Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting to hear about how you sort of started off in that, okay, I'm pursuing an MBA, but what is something I'd like to you know, really focus on what is a subtopic in business that I want to develop my skills and interests in? And it's cool how you went from like business to finance and management to information systems. And now um, you're at where you are now. And in in the long run, it seems like it was a really good investment into your education.
1: Uh, oh, definitely. I think uh, a lot of these things might not seem like they're directly connected to begin with, but I think what you learn lays the foundation. So everything that I learned in my engineering as well as my MBA and my work experience. I think all of these were extremely helpful because it gives you a lot of uh, insights into how the real world works, which is what you want as a social science researcher.
0: Mm-hmm. So one area that you explore is the competitive and strategic implications of technology on business models. So, what are some interesting patterns or results you've observed, and what might be some conclusions you've made based on those observations?
1: Um, I guess almost every business or industry um, today has been impacted in one or more ways by the advancements in digital technologies, uh, and especially the developments of the last couple of decades. Most of my research focuses on understanding the impacts of digital technologies and my research has kind of evolved in keeping with the evolution of these technologies, especially the web. Right? So just to kind of give you, a, give you some background, uh, if you think about the web, the web actually has gone through three very distinct phases of evolution. Right? So in the very f- early phases of the web, the focus was primarily about me, me as an individual, me as an organization, me as an entity, trying to communicate something about myself to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. So it was more about one way communication. And all of this changed in the early 2000s when the focus shifted from me to you. You as a consumer, you as a third party, you as a a reviewer, for instance, right? How can I as a firm get your input, leverage your inputs to add value? So this concept of what we call consumer co-creation, right? And in the last decade or so, we moved from me and the you economy to the us economy, right? Us as peers, as as co-creators, and what we call the sharing economy. And the sharing economy or the us economy is predicted to be orders of magnitude bigger than the me and the you economy put together. So a lot of my research these days has focused on understanding the sharing economy, how do users, what does it mean for users, individuals, organizations. And what I do is leverage a lot of large scale data, both structured as well as unstructured data from these sharing platforms or crowdsourcing platforms to understand granular user behaviors because that's what will help us design better platforms and better markets, right? So just to give you an example with one of my PhD students, we were one of the first to study uh, online peer-to-peer financial lending markets. Right? So this was a very new context. And here you had these online markets where individuals could go about lending money or borrowing money from strangers, right? And such markets never existed online before. So this is a very new context. And there were a lot of very open questions is like, what makes it work? How do users behave? How do they find out who are the right people to lend money to or borrow money from and so on, right? So one of the things that we wanted to understand is uh, what are the different pieces of information that people make use of in these markets when they want to make a decision about lending money to others, right? And you had all of these, what do you call quantitative information, which is um, FICO scores, your past credit histories, your bank balances, and all of this stuff. And this is what you call hard information. And this hard information is typically what a financial institution would use to make a decision about whether to give you a loan for a car, purchasing a car, for instance, right? Mm -hmm. Now, all of this information is available. But in addition, what you find in these online platforms is people share a lot of information about um, personal stuff, right? You have information about who they are friends with, They post a lot of uh, pictures and images. They post a lot of text. And all of this is what you call soft information. And what was interesting was when we analyzed all of this data that was available, what we found was that over and above all of these hard credit information, the soft information was extremely significant. The lenders actually made use of this soft information in making a decision about who to lend money to, how much to, lend and all of that stuff and this these soft pieces of information were actually extremely valuable in in terms of the information that they provided to the lenders um so this was some very very interesting finding because this is a lot of implications of what kind of information would you provide to whom and when in these markets to make the markets more efficient right um so that's just an example of the kind of work that i do and i also do a lot of uh, what you call um, randomized field experiments, which is to design informational interventions and to understand um, what is the impact of these information on different participants in these markets. So this is similar to let's say a clinical trial where you're trying to uh, kind of understand how what is the impact of a particular drug and that's the intervention that you would have in a clinical trial, right? So here, instead of a drug, you're looking at information. What information? If you provide a particular piece of information, how would that impact outcomes?
0: Those are some really great insights. Research you connect technology to the field of experimental. I speak from personal experience when I say that when I was first learning economics, I always looked at it as something that was rigid. You know, a lot of natural economics, not very flexible. But it was it was really nice to hear about how your work in economics is very flexible and how your research has to adapt with what's going on in everyday technological interactions.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the really cool aspects of being in this field is because technology changes so rapidly Mm -hmm. and what we really need is to have an open mind to kind of uh, be able to kind of, I guess, the new opportunities and new possibilities and you want to be open to those. Uh, especially talking about experiments, this was not very common in um, economics, primarily because it's very costly to implement these experiments, field experiments, right? But now nowadays, almost all platforms have what you call A-B testing platforms, where they run hundreds of thousands of experiments almost on a daily basis, some of these large platforms. So essentially, they are trying to understand the same thing. And as researchers, I think this provides us a lot of opportunities to understand some things at a level.
0: Right. So let's zero in on a very specific, some specific research that you've conducted. So you recently worked on a study on the impacts of introducing artificial intelligence that competes with human designers in this sort of crowdsourcing platform. Would you go into more detail about the nature of this implications in the digital economy?
1: Oh, sure. So that's something that I've been working on over the last several months. Um, and as we are well aware, uh, AI solutions are increasingly being deployed for a wide variety of tasks. So we've seen AI beating humans at chess and go, mm-hmm. and we're seeing rapid progress in self-driving cars and robots are becoming commonplace in manufacturing uh, tasks. Right? But what is interesting is uh, we are increasingly seeing AI competing with humans in creative tasks as well right, although some of these AI solutions are still in their infancy. So given that in several contexts, humans are likely to compete with AI in the near future, we wanted to understand how individuals respond to this threat from AI. So in this particular study, we study a large crowdsourcing platform for design, for design tasks such as logo designs and T-shirt designs, where seekers, who are the people who, need it, who are in need of the design, they would set up a contest and people from all over the world, designers from all over the world can participate in these contests and submit their design solutions. Wow. A contest is, yeah.
0: Oh, I, I was just saying, well, because like I'd never heard of that before. That was really interesting.
1: Uh, the, the, these are like huge marketplaces because these days, I think, if you want to design a t-shirt, if you want to design, if you want to have a logo for your firm and all of those, people don't go to, I think, um, they don't go to our typical ad agency to get these done. Uh, there is, there's so many designers or freelancers who basically um, participate in all of these crowdsourcing marketplaces, and you can pretty much tap into the talent pool from the entire world, right? So here, these uh, contests are typically open for a week to 10 days, and um, the designers can also get some feedback about their submissions during the contest and resubmit their designs again to the same contest, right? And finally, there is a winner. The contest holder decides a winner and that winner gets paid for his design submissions. So what is interesting in this marketplace is um, the marketplace decided to, the platform decided to introduce a AI system for logo design, right? So what this AI system does is you just give it some parameters, you give it some requirements the AI will spit out like a couple of hundred designs in a few minutes, right? And then you can choose if uh, you are uh, happy with some of these. And this was a very interesting development because uh, you wouldn't expect uh, like a design task, which is a creative task, to be that quickly replaced by an artificial intelligence system. So we wanted to study how individual designers were reacting to this, were responding to this. And what we found was very interesting. We actually wanted to understand how successful designers, which is the winners in these contests, how were they responding, behaving differently compared to the others. And what we found is both all of these designers, both the winners as well as the others, clearly were responding to the threat from this AI system. But they responded very differently. And what we found was the unsuccessful designers basically decided to compete more harder, which is they would participate in more contests and make more submissions across different contests and essentially hedging their bets to improve their odds of winning. And that was very different from the successful designers. The successful designers, on the other hand, they actually – Increase their number of resubmissions to just within the same contest. So instead of actually speeding themselves thin, they were actually improving the quality of their submissions with every resubmission. And one of the interesting things was they increased both the emotional content and the complexity of their designs. Right? And so we had to actually use a lot of state of the art image analysis techniques and, of course, econometrics techniques to tease out these effects. But this was a very interesting finding, which is that the successful designers were pursuing a strategy that seemed to be working much better for them. And if you think about it, uh, these are two attributes, the emotion that's contained in the design, as well as the complexity of the design. These are two attributes that actually differentiates a good design from others. And what is also interesting is these are two attributes which are still difficult for AI to master. Although I guess in the near future we might actually see that happen, but the successful designers seem to understand what is their core competence, right, and leverage that. So we're still working on this, but what is interesting is uh, what we're looking forward to studying is whether a man-machine combination would actually do even better, right? So an AI plus a human designer, and because this will have significant implications for how we design these online platforms and how we can leverage both AI as well as human creativity.
0: It's interesting to hear about this project, and I definitely look forward to um, seeing where it goes in the future. I think that like AI is something we've only recently been talking about. Uh, I'm reminded, like Andrew Yang, one of the presidential candidates for the Democratic Party over the past, he was like that one candidate really talked about the intersection of AI. And, AI. and I think that a lot of the research that you're doing uh, in terms of looking at how AI might compete with these designers and these crowdsourcing platforms is really integral to understanding where the future of our country is going and how how much more an economy populated by technology, how much more important it is um, now more than ever.
1: Yeah, because I think, um, as you mentioned, AI is definitely the uh, way forward. Um, and there's a lot of concerns about how it's taking away jobs and how it's affecting um, like low skill labor and so on, but here we are seeing a significant impact on just not just low skill labor but really creative tasks right and people are not still ready for that kind of a change, but we're already seeing that happening. so uh, it's very, very important for us to understand what are the what is the combination does it that'll work better right? It's not about competing head on, but can we actually uh, take advantage of these Machine, machine learning algorithms and produce a better output, right? Both and machine together, can we actually generate better outcomes?
0: Mm-hmm. So we have time for just one last question. Over the course of your experiences, what are some of the biggest takeaways you've had or things you've learned? And what do you look forward to in the future?
1: <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I remember a very simple analogy that someone told me early on. There are two types of people in the world. There are carpenters and there are architects, right? So both of them offer very valuable services and each of us have, has our choices to be able to make our choices, whether we want to be a carpenter or an architect, right? And a carpenter is someone here, just to make it clear, a carpenter here is someone who is very skilled at using tools, right? So when you are in research, you typically start out as a carpenter or an apprentice and you become very adept at using tools. But unfortunately, a lot of researchers just stop there and they are satisfied with their knowledge of using the tools. However, if you do not graduate beyond your knowledge of the tools, then you'll always be looking up to someone else to tell you what needs to be done with the tools that you've mastered. So if you want to go beyond being skilled at just using the tools, you need to graduate from being a carpenter to being a good architect. And where you can actually drive the creative process and you determine what needs to be built and why. So basically what this means is you have to graduate from being adept at using your left brain to using your left brain and more of your right brain. And I, I think that's very, very important as a researcher, which is not just being good with the technical stuff, knowing econometrics, knowing all your tools, again, don't get me wrong, that those are very important, but you actually need to start being more creative as to what are the right questions to ask. And that is not something that can be easily taught. Right? So it requires actually two things. One is you have to be very stubborn. You cannot just give up. So you really need to be stubborn and persistent to achieve something that's meaningful, something that's different and something that's interesting. But there's another very important attribute. I think Linus Torvalds and the founder of Linux in one of his interviews, he talks about it. He calls it good taste. Right? So good taste is something that is not easy to teach. right? You cannot teach it to someone as easily as teaching how to use a tool. But good taste has got a lot to do with intuition, which is your right brain, right? Instinctively knowing what is, right, what is the right thing to do and what is the right way to do it. And this is something that's very, very important. So in Sanskrit, there is a term for it is called Viveka, right? You've probably heard of Vivekananda. Mm-hmm. So Viveka here essentially means discrimination, the ability to discriminate, which is considered to be one of the higher states of the mind. Right? And here, we're talking about discrimination, it's about being able to discriminate between very fine shades of quality, right? Very fine shades of what is right, what's wrong, what is good, and what's not so good, and so on. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that can be easily taught. It's very illusive. Um, So someone who's mastered this can provide examples and kind of point to it, Uh, but for the most part, it's like pointing to the moon, pointing the moon to the baby, right? The baby keeps looking at the finger and completely misses the moon, right? So it's it's, uh, something that you have to constantly keep learning. It's always a work in progress. Um, So I guess um, that's a a long answer to your (laughs) question, but... (laughs) But as far as the future, I think it's a very, very exciting time, especially to be in this field of information systems, because um, almost every day there's something new that comes along. So as I said in the very beginning, we just have to be open to all new possibilities and uh, I guess continue to be curious.
0: Yes, definitely. Um, Those are some very interesting ideas I have to keep in the back of my mind. Um, Definitely have to think more about that. So thank you once again for agreeing to speak with us today, Professor Vishwanathan. It was very insightful to hear from you and learn about the work you do.
1: Uh, Not at all. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure talking to you.
0: All right. So this concludes our seventh episode of the Global Student Economics Forum's official podcast. Um, Anyone listening in the audience, please be sure to check out our website at www.gsefofficial.org if you would like to learn more about joining and contributing to our organization. Thank you everyone for tuning in today and we will see you next time.